0: Amen. You may be seated. We are in Matthew chapter 19. We're going back just a little bit. I want to catch the last part because it goes together. Jesus is trying to get into his apostles before he leaves them what the kingdom is all about. That they're called to be the greatest thing you can be called to be in the world and that is a servant of God. So the message this morning is entitled upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as your children make it clear to us today, give us an understanding of your word, apply it to our hearts, that we might put it into action. Lord, that you might show each one what their giftedness is and what their place of service is. Lord, that they might have fullness of joy in this life. And Lord, well done when we see you Lord I pray as the gospel goes forth because the gospel is here how the king died for his people that if there are any here that do not know you that today you draw them to yourself in Jesus name, amen. I don't know about you but I don't really enjoy politics. Our politicians say it's a necessary evil but it is for the most part evil. I remember a few years ago in one of the former elections, I think it was a senator from Nevada, said some just terrible lies about the the candidate running for president in the other party. And it had its effect. And when he was confronted with the fact that he lied and he knew he lied, he said, well, it had its effect, and that's politics. If you get done what you want, it's okay. And it's not a lie if people believe it. Right? That's politics. Politics is always looking to lever influence so they can get their way. And so we're coming into that season again. It seems like we never get out of it where people lie, they cheat, they steal. And because many of them are in places of power, they're surprised when they get in trouble and somebody actually catches them. Amazing. But listen, you need to understand something. Our place is not to somehow make the government good enough and countries good enough that Jesus will come back. That's not going to happen. Have you read the last book? Jesus wins, but it's not because governments happen to become believers and Christians. There are so many influence groups. I'm I'm right now uh, learning about one. It's the one that puts you on the the uh, annual national pair breakfast. And it it seems on on the outside that it's really a a very good thing that they have a pair pair of breakfast, but you know why all the politicians come? Because they want to be seen there. Whether they believe in God or not, whether they're born again, they want to be seen there so that people say, oh yeah, well, they're this and I'll vote for them. And the institution that puts it on wants to be very behind the scenes, but their whole premise is not Jesus. They say it's about Jesus, but it's an, their, their whole opportunity is to try to get close to people, and I think they probably have good intentions, but they think if they can get to the people of power, that eventually they'll be able to change politics. It's not true. And they even say, you know, Jesus went to the people of power. No, he didn't. Jesus came to the poor people. In James, James writes, hath not God chosen the poor, rich in faith? And Paul said, not many wise, not many noble. I think it was Queen Elizabeth I said she was so glad for the consonant M. Because he didn't say not any. He said not many. But God has chosen the weak things and the foolish things and the base things of this earth. And the things that are not to bring to pass the things that are things that are not, and he just he's chosen us of all people, and he's chosen the gospel. So stop thinking if you get to the influential people, it'll make a big difference. I've seen a lot of big time athletes make decisions for Christ, but. You never really see a whole lot more that's done. Not, not, not ever, but not a whole lot. But we think, well, if we get to them, if we get to the people that are rich, get to the powerful people, oh, they'll make such an influence. Well, what's the influence? Is it people or is it the gospel? See, that's the way the world works. You get the influential people, get the rich people, get everybody moving a certain way, and then we'll have a utopia. It's false. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. Now listen, if you're an athlete, if you're a politician, you ought to try to win the people of the Lord around you. But just to let, just to let you know, it's not going to make it better. All of the Christian athletes in the NFL, has it gotten better? No, it hasn't gotten better. All of the Christian politicians and all the people are supposed to be Christian in the government. Is it getting better? No. With all the mega churches in these big cities, are the big cities getting more righteous? No. It's not the way Jesus works. He works through individual servants. And if it were about that, he would have given Pilate a different answer. Pilate said, are you a king? He said, you say so. But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would tell my servants to fight. And if Jesus told his servants to fight, they would win. Because all Jesus had to do was say the word and everybody would fall down dead. And any of his servants that got killed, bring them back to life. But that's not what he was after. Jesus came to be a servant. He came, and we're going to see in this passage that he came to lay his life down. And give himself a ransom so that many would come to know him as his own personal Savior. And he calls us to the same thing. So first of all, in chapter 19, verses 27 through 30, we see the promise of reward. So we're backing up a little bit. We covered this last week, but I want to back up because this connects with what Jesus is trying to get through to his disciples. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. They needed to learn to be servants. And they hadn't got that yet. They literally were on the ground floor of this kingdom thing, and they saw it like the world would see it, like, hey, you know, we're, we're in that place. And Peter figures out as soon as he, Jesus has given the challenge to the rich young ruler, hey, give everything you have to the poor, come and follow me. And he goes away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. And all of a sudden, Peter says, hey, we left everything. What do we get? Right? And Jesus gives them a promise. He said, i got to get there first. Truly, I say to you, verse 28, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He gave them a promise. You're going to sit on a throne one day. What they don't get is the time between their attitude now and when they're prepared to sit on those thrones. It's called the process of sanctification. They don't get that part. They get the promise, but not what God's going to do with their life in the meantime at the end of his ministry just before he goes back to heaven after he's raised from the dead the lord comes and meets with the apostles there at the sea of galilee and he's baking some fish remember and they're out fishing again because they decided well we failed so let's go fishing we know how to fish and they fish all night they don't catch anything and jesus is on the shore and he says children have you caught any fish and you know, when somebody says that, well, you've been fishing all night, that's just got to be, oh,
1: yeah, who
0: is that? And Peter goes, oh, that's the Lord. So he dives in the water and swims ashore, probably to be first to, yeah, I don't know about those guys doing fishing again, you know, I don't know. And the Lord says, cast your net on the other side. They pull in this great catch of fish and they haul it ashore, but Jesus already has fish waiting. And they have the discussion, remember where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you love me? You're going to sit on the throne. Do you love me though? And Peter's grieved, right? Because he asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter's the one that said he would never forsake the Lord, but he's the one that lied. They all forsook and fled, but he's the one that lied and said he didn't know him and denied the Lord three times. And the Lord gives Peter a promise. He said, Peter, I'm going to work in your life so much that one day you're going to die for me. Now, at this point in his life, before the Holy Spirit comes, Peter doesn't get that. And his first response is, well, that doesn't seem fair. What about John, right? And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, if he lives till I come back again, that's not your business. You follow me. See, he didn't get that yet. One day, Peter would desire the greatest thing, and that is to lay his life down for a Savior. But he wasn't there yet. The thrones are promised, and notice, look, it's equal opportunity promise for reward. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, it's what Jesus called us to. He was going to the cross, and his invitation was, if any man would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was Jesus going? To the place of sacrifice. He was going to die. Because in this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, this is in the end. It's It's not what you get here. It's what's in eternity. Paul said, don't live for the things that you can see. Live for the things you can't see. And that's what we live for as believers in Jesus Christ. Not for influence and power and stuff in this world. And if God gives you those things, those are just a stewardship so more people can come to Christ. Equal opportunity. And then he has these words, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's the theme of this whole message the upside down kingdom. It's not by politics or by power, it's by serving. Jesus came not to reign the first time, but to be a servant and to give his life. It's the theme of the whole Old Testament all the way to Jesus. The beginning of his ministry, John points him out and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Jews would understand that's a sacrifice, not a symbol. A lamb that takes away sin is a sacrifice. So he gives them a parable In verses 1 through 16 of chapter 20. said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And that was good wages. And it seemed that there was a discussion about what he would pay. And I think this landowner, because this landowner is the father, pays much more than is earned. So he gives them a very good wage. They're excited about it. They go into the vineyard. When he agreed to the laborers, they went, they went to work. Verse 3, he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the market. And he said to them, you also go to the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. In a smaller agricultural community, people would know who this important farmer was. And that you could trust his word. So they just went to work believing that he would take care of them. Verse 5, again he went out about the 6th hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing, and about the 11th hour. Now the day went from 6 in the morning till 6 at night. And this is probably harvest time. You know, they're in the vineyard. Once the grapes need to be harvested, it's time to get them in. And so he goes out every hour so that there is enough laborers to bring in the harvest. He sees these the 11th hour, and he went out, And they were standing around. He said, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you you too go to the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. Now that's human, isn't it? That's human. How come they got as much as we did? See, that's just part of the human condition. Don't think that you're special because you can tell when something's not fair. I hear this all the time. I don't think it's fair. Well, let me just, just so if nobody else has told you this in your life, and this is one of the things that I emphasize over and over when my children are growing up. Life is not fair. Don't be a baby. Don't be that that griping person. So, I don't think it's fair. Nobody wants to hear that. God doesn't need to hear that. Now what attitude could these servants have had? Wow. That's some guy. That the harvest is precious enough that he'll be the same for an hour as he did for the whole day. He gave us what he promised us and he is so gracious. I don't want to work for this guy. But they didn't, did they? And neither do we. Now, Jesus in this parable is not talking about reward for service, he's talking about salvation. The vineyard is the kingdom itself, the landowner is God the Father, the foreman is Jesus Christ, the laborers are believers, and the denarius is eternal life, which all received equally for trusting in Christ. The workday is the believer's lifetime of service to his Lord and the evening is eternity. The thief on the cross that died in the last part of his life gets to enjoy heaven just like those that grew up in a Christian home and received Christ early and served Jesus all their life. Just like there is an equal absence of God in hell, all in heaven equally enjoy The amazing presence of God. No exceptions or variations, whether a person comes to God as a small child or has a lifetime of faithful service or right at the end. He's not teaching about the difference of rewards, but the equality of salvation. Jesus was dealing with the selfish indulgent, envious and ambitious orientation of the disciples. Now listen, later, after Jesus raises from the dead, After Stephen is put to death by the guy who's going to become the apostle Paul that turns the world upside down, a lot of these priests that were involved in hating Jesus and wanting him to die are going to come to Christ. Paul the apostle of all people was a terrorist before he came to Christ. He wants to deal with these apostles' attitudes that you ought to be rejoicing that God, the gracious landowner, offers salvation to all that will receive him. All that will come. All that are available. Not just a certain few or select. Now John MacArthur says there's some things that we can learn from this parable, and I think they're very good. First of all, God sovereignly initiates and accomplishes salvation. He's the one that goes and calls laborers into his vineyard. Second, he alone establishes the terms of salvation. Because the laborers in the vineyard come at different times, they work different number of hours, and we can assume they work with different degrees of productivity, but they do not receive different pay. The measure of God's gift of salvation is not man's merit or accomplishments, but his own grace, which does not vary. Isn't that amazing? Because we might look around and say, well, I don't know if that Christian's all that faithful. doesn't matter. God still saved. There's no there's nobody that's just kind of like barely saved. You're either saved or you're not saved. Not like partly in the door and partly out. Third, God continues to call men into his kingdom. He keeps going back and back and back to the marketplaces of the world calling men to himself. He never stops until the last one is saved. A fourth principle, God redeems everyone who is willing. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out, Jesus said. All the laborers who went to the vineyard recognized they were needy. They had no hope of life except for the landowner would pay them. A fifth principle, God is compassionate to those who have no resources and acknowledge their hopelessness. He reaches out to those that are in need. Those that were there at the 11th hour, maybe they had a hard, harder time even getting and, and no one else would not hire them because they just weren't that hireable. They weren't that employable, employable. But Jesus loves them and calls them to himself. No one can say when they get to heaven, well, I was a good investment. It's a good thing God saved me because look what I did for him. Nobody can say that even the Apostle Paul said I'm the chief of sinners seventh or excuse me sixth all who come to the vineyard worked all of them worked years ago there was an old fellow in the church we love him he's with the Lord now and he knows different but he developed his own theology about people that make decisions but you never see any life and he said, well, I just think it's like what the Bible says, you know. People are born, some are just stillborn. <laughs> whoa, whoa, back up. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's an analogy he probably made up in his head to justify the fact he'd lead people in a prayer but never see any life. There's no such thing as a magic word that you just, hey, say these words and you're in. You'll be very disappointed. I don't do that. I share the gospel with people. I show them what they need to talk to the Lord about. And I leave that up between them and the Lord. And I love to be there when they pray, but I'm not leading them. Sometimes people say to me, what do I say? And I say, well, if you were drowning and there's a lifeguard right there, what would you say? Help. That's what you need to talk to the Lord about. You need help. And I go over the gospel again. The Bible says you're born in sin. And without a Savior, you're going to perish The Bible says in the Old Testament, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarred, they'll be white as snow. There's nobody ever born that doesn't need to have that conversation. I don't care what kind of wonderful Christian home you were born into. I don't know if you can remember the date or not, but there needs to be a time in your life because nobody is not born in sin except for Jesus. Everybody else needs a Savior and needs to have that conversation. Remember Chuck Swindoll, the, the, uh, he wrote a lot of wonderful Christian books. He's the one that, we, that started the angel tree we ministered to prisoners with. He had a little problem because people would ask when his wife got saved and she was a good Roman Catholic, and he kind of pushed back. So, said, well, she's always been a Christian. She just grew up this way. No. No. No one's born in righteousness. Everybody needs a Savior. You may know all the facts, you may believe Jesus, but the devils believe in tremble. When did you submit to the promise of the gospel? That's Jesus' invitation. Deny yourself, come and follow me. And everybody that comes to the vineyard works because everyone that is saved has been gifted and called for a purpose. Now listen, we have opportunities to serve, whether it's the West Institute or serving in Sunday school or taking the offering or greeting people. There are all kinds of opportunities to serve. And my primary purpose isn't so that we can check off and say, we have 100% involvement. What a wonderful church we are. Listen, as your pastor, as a shepherd here, I desire for you to hear one day from Jesus, well done. And if you're not serving your place of giftedness, you're missing out on the joy Because the fulfillment of finding that place is like nothing else on earth. Nothing else. I mean, when you find that place of ministry, you're going to say, whoa, all this in heaven too? This is amazing. That's why we challenge you. And it's unbelievable to me that most Christians that are in church this morning don't even know what their giftedness is. And secondly, they're not even concerned about finding out. You're missing out on the joy. As the church grows, I'm sure there comes this attitude, well, somebody else will do it. Why would you want somebody else to have your joy? There's plenty to go around. Finding your place of service and serving. Everyone has a gift. Everyone should be serving in that place of service. Everyone. And just like those guys that came, here they were serving the Lord, but then they still had this envy. What does that show? God was showing the disciples their heart wasn't perfected yet. That's not fair. Whenever you want to get your way and you begin to work it, however you work it, whether it's by a bad attitude or, you know, that's politics. We don't want that. We want God's best. Eighth, or excuse me, last, God always gives what he has promised. He keeps calling people. Is God going to run out of grace? Never going to run out of grace. The old gospel song says, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there is still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. Now he says this statement again. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What's he telling him? You disciples, you apostles, you need to be striving to be a servant. Not striving for preeminence. Where's your place of service? So he calls them aside. He's given them a promise. And anyone that will sacrifice the Lord, there's the promise reward. He talks them about the amazing opportunity for the gospel and for salvation. And now he's going to pull them aside and tell them again, remind them again about his own personal ministry. This is not an aside. Jesus came to teach and to heal, and then the things went bad, and he went to the cross. No. It wasn't politics gone bad. It wasn't a plan that Satan destroyed. From the Old Testament, it was prophesied from the third chapter of Genesis that one day a Savior would come. Satan thought he'd destroyed God's kingdom But there was a redeemer that was coming and the promise from clear back from Genesis 3 that one day Jesus would crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would bruise his heel which was before crucifixion was even invented there and in Psalm 22, crucifixion is lined out pretty carefully. And so he pulls them aside, verse 17. Now what's happened in the timeline is Jesus has healed Lazarus already, and now getting ready for that Passover, the third Passover's ministry, the last Passover before he's offered on the cross as the Passover lamb, he goes back north from Jerusalem, and he joins the pilgrims that are coming down. We'll talk more about that next week. And they're nearing Jericho, and we're not going to get to that part this week, but he tells them for at least the third time, What's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem? They're all waiting for the kingdom, because, and they're trying to line out, well, what is our part? We want to have our part. We're on the bottom floor. What's our place of opportunity, of, of influence and power? So he pulls them aside. Behold, verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. That's why Jesus came. He came to be the Savior. The point of his whole life was to live his life and for the last three and a half years, live it before the nation of Israel. Be recorded for the whole world to know that this lamb was without spot, without blemish. The sinless lamb of God, lamb of God was going to go and offer his life. And when Jesus goes to the cross, you don't have to come here too many weeks, and you're going to hear this over and over again. It's not Satan that punishes him there. John MacArthur says, from 12 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that day he was crucified, hell came to Golgotha, and the wrath of the Father was poured out on the Son. The very first words of Jesus recorded In Luke 2, when he's a a young boy and his parents are looking for him, he says, I must be about my father's business. His last words from the cross were, it is finished. The work of salvation was accomplished on the cross because he took all of the wrath of God for all the sins of the world. And then he pillowed his head and died. And then three days later, he arose again. To demonstrate that he conquered sin and death. That's what Jesus came for. Now, the last part of this is just amazing to me. He gets personal, but the disciples still don't get it. I mean, he shares his heart with them, and the next thing, here's James and John bringing their mother to ask listen we heard about the 12 thrones but you know we really like to have you know right and left side they missed everything right over their head but you know what we miss a lot too don't we we understand as believers all that god has provided for us all that god has blessed us with and we still go after our own things well, for a closer walk with God, that last stanza we sing. Whatever that idol be, no matter how precious it's been, help me tear it from your throne and worship only thee. See, when, when things bother us, when we get angry because somebody's getting in our stuff or taking our glory or whatever it is, you need to understand when your temper starts getting there and you start getting angry, they're getting close to your idol. Maybe God's pointing out, you just need to let that thing go. Just let it go. Because in the long run, God knows the truth. And he's not going to miss anything that you do for him. Don't worry about it. God sees it. But they send their mom. Which seems, I don't know. For these big, tough sons of thunder, John, James and John, that seems a little manipulative. But, you know, it's politics, you know. And they're thinking Jesus can't say no to mom. And they're right there. In the other gospels, it just has what they ask him. Lord, we we want you to command. And it's kind of like they're trying to ask the genie the right way. You know? You ask a genie the wrong way, you ask him for a million bucks, and you end up with a yard full of deer, right? So, okay, Lord, we're gonna ask this real careful. We wish that you would do whatever we want you to. You said whatever we ask, right? So we want to be first and second. You pick first and second. And Jesus comes back and he says, You don't know what you're asking. You know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? Oh yeah, we can do it. And he says, Yes, you will. But the distance between now and when you're prepared to do that is a lot of sanctification. A lot of sanctification. Now notice that the Lord does not put them down or berate them for desiring greatness in the kingdom. No. He just said, you're going to be great in the kingdom, but not the way you think. And then he gives once again the illustration of his own life. He says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. You want greatness in the kingdom? that's good. That's a good motivation. You want reward from the Lord for a life well lived? That's a good thing. But this is how you do it. Become a servant. Be sensitive as the Lord, because the Lord keeps working our life, doesn't he? He doesn't let you get away with stuff, does he? As soon as you wander off, there he is, right? As soon as you think you got it made, he shows up with a pop quiz, and you realize, okay, I still got pride. Okay, I'm still dealing with that. About the time you think you got patience, another pop quiz. Okay, I don't have patience yet. He's always there because he desires for one day him to shine through clearly in our lives that we can be a clear reflection of Jesus Christ. The way to greatness is not the way the world does it. It's the way Jesus does it. So he says... Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was Jesus going? To his place of service. The place where he would lay his life down, where the king would die for his own people. And one of the most precious, I think, verses in all of Scripture it says that I think, best in the King James, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of all the princes of the earth stoops down, washes each one of us from our sins in his own blood. That's a king. That's a king that's worthy of our service of our whole life. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, work in our heart the desire to be like you. Not to be at our own business, but to be about the king's business, and that's serving others as we serve you. And Lord, the world's not going to understand, and it's not going to look like greatness to the world, but Lord, more and more help us to focus on you so that what we care about is what Jesus thinks. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there are some here, they've never surrendered to Jesus they do they don't know you lord as their savior that today would be the day you draw them to yourself they accept eternal life from your hands and you wash them from your sin from their sin and set them free to serve with all their life we'll give you all the glory in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing together